find yourself uh, standing without a Bible, uh, just put your hand up. And there's men coming down the aisles right now who would love to hand you a Bible. And I just want everybody to be able to not only hear the Word of God, but also be able to read it. So it's coming in the ear gate, coming in the eye gate, and we want to know what this book has to say for our lives. And so um, make, uh, go ahead and get get one of those Bibles. Sunday mornings we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. We pick things up in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 17. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles, to mock and to scourge and to crucify. This is the first time the disciples have learned that Jesus is going to be crucified. And the third day he will rise again. And then... The mother of Zebedee's sons, the mother of James and John, came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Not much. Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and on the other on your left, in your kingdom. Just the two most significant positions in eternity. Uh, it's a Jewish mother, I tell you, it's, it's wonderful. Nothing's too good for my boy. Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? He, shoot, he shoots right past the mom. He knows the boys are behind this, and he addresses them. And they said to him, We're able. And so he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. And when the other ten disciples heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself, and he said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to what degree? And to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for a memorial holiday and a Memorial Day weekend in the United States of America and a chance to just stop and give honor and respect and to lift up prayers for those, Lord, who have sacrificed their lives and are currently sacrificing their life on a daily basis for our safety and for our freedom. It really humbles us, Lord, when we think about that and it really stirs us to want to spend our lives in a way that is right and is pure and is good, in a way that is worthy of the sacrifice that has been given now for hundreds of years in this nation. 
And we pray, Lord, for our men and women in uniform all over the world today. And we pray that in some small way they would have expressed to them a sense of our appreciation for what it is that they are doing for us, Lord. We know that the role that they play in this country and for this country is God-given as they are part of the government and they are a part of protecting the citizens. And we pray that you would bless them and protect them in their service to us and their service to you, Lord. Thank you for every veteran that stands in this room right now and the sacrifice that is represented in their life for us. We pray that you would help us as Christians to use our freedoms, our unique freedoms in this country, to their fullest, Lord, for your glory, not only in the light of the sacrifice that these have made, Lord, but in the light of the greatest sacrifice of all, the one that Jesus has made for us. And so it humbles us to think about all of this, Lord, but it, it, it doesn't depress us or put us in any hopeless category. It stirs something great in us about our lives, and we're grateful for that. We pray, Lord, that you would meet us with us this morning in your word, and you would open it up to us. We want you to know again this morning that we are thankful to be able to build our lives on your word and on truth that is going to outlive the heavens and the earth. Thank you for your word. Sanctify us by your truth this morning, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this passage of Scripture, we have Jesus telling us how to achieve true greatness in life. How to live a life in which during the life that we live and then after our life has been lived and is gone, where our life will be esteemed by God and by our fellow man as having been a great life or having been a great person. You think about how valuable that is to have that instruction from the Lord. Only in just a few verses, does it? You have to read 400 pages of a book that you buy in the airport. But here is Jesus giving us instruction on how to live a life in which ultimately it will be esteemed as great by both God and man. I think it's very important for us as Christians to understand that greatness is not a bad word for us. And greatness is not some kind of a carnal, terrible thing for a Christian to uh, strive for or, or seek to attain to in our lives. I think that it's important for us to realize that it's not an unworthy or an unspiritual goal for our lives as Christians. And I think that we can be tempted because we can think about a desire for greatness, think of it almost exclusively um, in the light of people that have striven for it in their lives for selfish reasons. So sometimes we think about, uh, here's, somebody, here's somebody who would maybe even openly, vocally proclaim that they desire greatness for their life. And we might leave the family gathering or might leave the church service and think, wow, what a terrible, carnal person they are, you know, desiring greatness for their life. But greatness in and of itself and for the right reasons 
is not a bad thing. Selfish ambition, selfish greatness, that's not a great thing. And we'll talk about that in in just a, a few minutes. There is no condemnation in this passage by Jesus of the desire to be great. Notice in verse 26, to us as Christians, Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, it's a good thing, let him be your servant. Jesus does not also does not put down in any way the desire to be first. Notice in verse 27. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. I think one of the problems that we have today in the world, but it also afflicts the body of, of Christ, is a lack of desire to do something great with my life. To look and say, I want to accomplish something great in this world. I want to be something great in this world. And you think, when is the last time, as we spoke just a moment ago, you heard somebody say that, articulate it. I want my life to be great. I want to accomplish great things in this world in my three score and, and ten. And, and to declare that above all they'd like to live a life that all of the world would look at and, and declare that was a life that was truly great. That was a truly great person. And again, there can be that tendency to look and say, that guy's got to be egotistical, that's a terrible thing, that's a terrible way to live, but it isn't a terrible way to live, and that's a goal that every Christian ought to have. We ought to desire to be great for the glory of God. Every single one of us is Christians. Not to fall into some kind of a rut over a period of years where we look and say, I'll settle for a nice C- minus and I'll get into heaven and I don't mind what the reward will or won't be. We should always have within us a desire to be great and to do great things for God. If that has been lost in our Christian life, then one of the first thing that this teaching of Jesus does is it pushes us to return to that to believe God for great things in our lives and through our lives for His glory. We have a culture today that is increasingly kind of uh, tamping down on uh, excellence. It is at least, I, I wouldn't say in, in the public sector, uh, but in, or in the private sector, but in the public sec- sector, in what is dominated by government, there is such a desire to make everyone equal that those that are achievers in the culture, in whatever realm that they're in, they're almost uh, merciless, mercilessly attacked uh, and made to feel bad because their greatness in whatever realm is making everybody else look bad. And you see even governmental structure that is designed to tamp everyone down into a nice sea and keep everyone in that place. That is the death of something that should not die in the life of any human being, but should never die in the life of a Christian. We should want to be great. 
for God. We should want to be great for the good of mankind in this world that we live in. We should be willing to express that. We should be able, we should be willing to say that between us and God and, and mean it and desire for God to produce that in our lives and through our lives. Yeah, I think there is an absence in the culture in general of a desire for greatness. The, you look at what is exalted in the culture, uh, materialism, where the idea of greatness in the minds of too many people is, I've lived a great life because I have owned more cars than anyone else in town. Or I have more televisions in my house than anybody else that I know. Or the highest goal or stamp of greatness is, I have eaten more pasta than any human being I know in the course of my life. And those aren't marks of greatness. And you look at words like, even words like noble, heroic, greatness, they are disappearing from our vocabulary, much less the reality that the, and how much more the reality that is represented by those words. We don't use those words because we don't need those words. And it's a bad thing. And it's not a, a good thing. It would be good if people had a greater concern for living a life that could truly be described as great. The Bible, interestingly enough, does not condemn ambition. What it condemns is selfish ambition. God give us ambitious people. God give us ambitious men and women, young and old, every kind, talents, gifts, abilities, every tongue, every kindred, every nation of the world, men and women who desire, have an ambition to be great for God in this world. What is condemned is selfish ambition. And selfish ambition is an ambition that gives no thought to God or to others. It's completely self-dominated. The selfish person is one who wants their own way, doesn't care who gets hurt in the process of getting their own way. They don't care what problems they create. They don't care what conflicts they pre create, what divisions occur as a result of them getting their own way. And a, a selfish person is a very miserable person to live with or to be around. And, uh, and I mean, you're just looking at your watch. Can we, when can we get out of here? But there's something worse than a selfish person, and that is a person who is selfish and ambitious. The one who is purely selfish, uh, lacking ambition, the damage that they will do in life uh, will be very contained. The real damage that is done in life is the person who is terminally selfish, but then is also greatly ambitious, because that person is going to do a lot of damage and, and, and hurt a lot of people. And, and they're going to hurt a lot of people, even as we see in our passage here, because it occurs here, even in spiritual environments. The Bible condemns selfish ambition. Philippians chapter 2, Paul said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. 
Second Corinthians chapter, 20, uh, chapter 12, verse 20, and Corinth was a very carnal, selfish body of believers. Paul said, For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul lists the works of the flesh, and one of the works of the flesh, he says, is selfish ambitions. It is pride and selfish ambition, the Bible teaches, that has landed Satan in the very considerable mess that he is in. His determination to elevate his own selfishness above God's glory, above the good of man, has, has put him in the place that he's in. Isaiah writes of the fall of the devil, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How, are you, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For, here's the because of it, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High, and yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. It is He elevated His selfishness above God and the will of God above God's glory, above even the good of man. And wherever you see selfish ambition that exalts itself against God and expresses itself, no matter what damage it does to other human beings, you know the origin that it comes from, that it's demonic in its origin. Now notice that our passage teaches us how not to achieve greatness in verses 20 through 24. One wrong way to not become great <laughs> is the way, uh, or, or one wrong way to attempt to become great is the way that the mother of James and John tried to do here in this passage. We know this whole account here is found in three of the four Gospels. And so uh, each one of them gives us a little bit of insights to something that maybe the other doesn't. And we know from Mark's um, uh, record of, of that particular account that when, the, when Mrs. Zebedee, Mama of, of James and John, comes to make this request of Jesus that she is put up to it by her sons. And as we're told here in the passage, uh, they accompany her related you know, to this request that is made of, of Jesus here. The uh, interesting request that she makes of, of Jesus, as we saw when we were reading the scripture, she's attempting to secure the two highest spots in all of eternity for her sons. Jesus had been speaking earlier in the chapter and he spoke concerning the disciples when Peter kind of said, Hey, what's in it for us? We've left everything and we're following you at great sacrifice. What's in it for us? And Jesus said, as a reward that would be unique to the apostles, You will rule with me on twelve thrones. So they leave that conversation with Jesus, and James and John, they begin to talk this over, conversations that we're kind of embarrassed of later, right? 
But they start to talk this over and say, wait a second, there are going to be 12 thrones, we're going to be ruling with Jesus and all. Wow, what are the two greatest thrones that you could possibly have? Would be the throne on either side of him. And so they began to talk with mom on how they could begin to secure those particular uh, thrones. Now, what she attempts to do is uh, kind of humorous. It's kind of crazy, but it's, it's humorous in, in one way. Because she approaches Jesus on behalf of her sons, and she attempts to get Jesus. She asks Jesus if he will say yes to her request before she tells him what it is. Now listen, even I'm not that dumb to fall for that. How, how many of you have parents, have raised children, that have come to you at one time or another in their childhood and asked you for a favor... And then when you asked what it was, they asked you to say yes before they told you. I trust it's a common occurrence. It happened a couple of times in raising our two daughters. They came in very young, elementary school aged. And, uh, Dad, oh, we have a favor to ask of you. Sure, what is it? Well, could you say yes before we tell you? And, I mean, they're even trying to suppress a smile. They know... This is, they know even they wouldn't say yes to something like that. So I, how's dad going to do it? But that's where they come up and she asks for him to say yes before, she, before uh, she even asks what the request is. Now, it, it is sad to realize that it was James and John that put their mom up to this. And, and this is another thing that's at least mildly amusing to me about the passage because... You may be aware that James and John had a nickname. And their nickname was the Sons of Thunder. These guys could call, desire to call fire down and destroy a whole village and all. These were like the Harley riders among the twelve apostles. <laughs> and yet here they want something and they're going to get mom to ask it for them. It's just somebody's going to take their leather jackets away from them for being these kind of boys. Now, there's a reason for trying to get mom to do that. And the reason is, is that in that culture, older women were given a special place of, of privilege in the culture and of respect. And so, as a result, a mom could ask for something. Get, she, number one, she could get away with asking for something and then have a greater probability of getting what she was asking for more than uh, young men could get away with it. And, and so, that's why they send the mom uh, to, to do this. It is pure manipulation. And Jesus knows that the boys have been put, the boys have put mom up to this because again, he, he addressed them in verses 22 and 23. He knew they were behind it. So what you've got here in this attempt at greatness, in, in the way that they've attempted it here, it's just a shameless attempted power grab. And it, and it was an attempt to deceive Jesus about what their real goal was, and it was an attempt to manipulate the situation for their selfish, selfish ends. It was just pure selfish ambition. Now notice the effect that, that this uh, act of selfish ambition on the part of James and John had on the other ten apostles. And it wasn't very good there in verse 24. Um, we're told, when they heard it, 
the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. So they heard what James and John, word got back to them, what those guys tried to pull. They just tried to secretly get an audience with Jesus and get the top two thrones of the twelve. They started to steam over that. The manipulation, not only what they tried to do to Jesus, but the disrespect that it showed toward them. Now, it, when it says that the other disciples were greatly displeased there in the New King James, I think it says indignant in the Old King James, the Greek word there means extreme anger. It carries the idea of pain. And it doesn't mean that these sensitive apostles were hurt by James and John, what they did. What it means is they got so angry that it physically hurt to be that angry. I mean, they are frying over what it is that, that they had tried to do. All this proves James, uh, the writer of the book of James's point, when he said, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, doesn't come from God. But it's earthly, it's of the world, it's sensual, it's of the flesh, it's demonic, it's of the devil. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing will be there. And so this selfish ambition of, of the two created an instant disunity among the twelve. Back in verse 17, the, the apostles or the disciples, they're referred to as the twelve and so they went from being the twelve in verse 17 to now being the ten and two. That's what selfish ambition does. It turns, people, it turns people into camps. It drives people into camps. And here's the big problem. God's got a lot of work already invested. Jesus is just a few weeks away from the cross at this point in time. He has invested three and a half years in these guys, and he is planning to turn the whole world right side up through these twelve, or at least eleven of the twelve. And this selfish ambition on the part of these two threatens to jeopardize all of it at this very strategic moment in, 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 in time and in, in his public ministry. This is always what selfish ambition produces, even among God's people. Anger, frustration, a, uh, a sense of betrayal, splits, deep divisions within the body of Christ or within a church. And one of the reasons that this is not the way to achieve uh, greatness is that there is no peace found in a greatness that is achieved through manipulation or selfishness or a power play. And the reason is is if you gain power that way, or you gain greatness that way, then it's only a matter of time before someone comes and takes your power away using the same devices. It's like the gunslinger in the Western days. Here you are, you got to this position, reputation, all this kind of stuff, because you were the fastest draw, but sooner or later someone faster comes along. And when a person gains power in this kind of a way, or so-called greatness in this kind of a way, what they don't realize is there's someone coming up behind you that is dirtier than you, more amoral than you, 
more ruthless than you, and they will show you no pity in displacing you from the position of greatness that you manipulated yourself into. So you always got to watch your back. There's no peace with this kind of greatness. And so it doesn't deserve uh, to be called uh, greatness. When the, a person dies that uh, attains to greatness through these kind of things, manipulation and selfish ambition, all these kinds of things, and you can attain to a certain kind of greatness in this world through, through those things, but you'll never be considered great by other people. Your position may be great, but no one will think you are great. That's why those kind of people, when they die, they don't have open mics during the eulogies. Those memorial services are very strictly controlled services. Because they don't want to open that mic up to have anybody saying what they really think of the person. The single greatest enemy, the single greatest obstacle to achieving true greatness is selfishness. And the degree to which we are selfish is the degree to which we are not great and the degree to which we will never be thought of as great by people during our life or after our life. Well, if Jesus said that the way to achieve greatness is through servanthood, and that's what he tells us in verses 26 and 27, to achieve true greatness, it, it occurs by becoming a servant to others. That The old saying that the way up is down, and it's true, that raises the question, then, what is a servant? So here I am. I sit in a room like this. I say, God, this guy's talking, you know, and I, I, I want to be great now. And he's told me that I can't be great that way, and, uh, but I can, and God tells me that I can be great by being a servant. And so how in the world, what in the world does a servant do? What does a servant look like in this culture? And a servant is very simply one who serves others. The greatest definition I have ever heard related to uh, a servant is a servant is one who lives to make life better for others. That's worth writing down. I'm not judging you if you don't. You may have a photographic memory. But a servant is someone, it wouldn't be a photographic memory, would it? You know what I'm saying. <laughs> a servant is someone who lives to make life better for other people. Now, I can get my mind around that. It is to look at a person or to look at a situation and ask myself in that context, what can I do here to make life better for this person? What can I do in this situation that will make this situation better for the people involved? And then do that. In a marriage. And usually what to do in a situation like that is fairly obvious. But how it works in a marriage. Someone is married to a husband or married to a wife. They're in a particular situation, a trial, a difficulty, whatever is happening in their life at that moment in time. And it's just to stop and say to myself, for me concerning my wife, say, what 
is the single greatest thing I can do right now to make life better for her. And something will come to mind. And then the issue is to then do that. And when I've done it, I have become a servant in that situation. And the same thing works in a business with our fellow employees. It works in relationships with a larger biological family that we have. It works in our relationships in the body of Christ. It works in our relationship with fellow servants of the Lord who are attempting to make a difference for the Lord. It works in our relationship with our neighbors where we look and here's our neighbor has hit this rough spot or whatever it might be and I stop and I think to myself, what is the one great thing I could do right now to make life better for them and then to do that? And what I've done then is practically taken a position of, of, of the servant in their life. Now, notice in verse 28 the first two words, just as... And what that tells us is that if we wonder what would be the best thing to do in a a given situation, we will always be safe in asking ourselves, what would Jesus do here? What would Jesus say here? What would he uh, do here in this situation? And then if we don't know what he would do, discover what he would do in, in the Bible and then do that in the situation. Jesus is and was the ultimate and greatest servant, an example of what a servant is. And you can never go wrong by saying, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here in this, but um, I'll find out and then doing what it is that Jesus would do in the situation. Now, in verse 25, I think it's important to recognize that there is a world of difference between having power in this world and possessing greatness or having the kind of influence in this world that Jesus is talking about. In verse 25, in the world, how the Gentiles operate in the godless world out there, those who are considered great are those who rule over other people and are served by other people. You look at the typical org chart of any corporation or business, and it is a pyramid. And a person's power or person's uh, y- y- their power in, in that particular corporation or organization is directly proportional to how high they are up on that triangle. And the higher they are up, with the, it, and the more people they have under them serving them, the more power that they have in this world. That's how the world operates. That's how uh, power is measured by the world uh, in, in this fallen world. But Jesus tells us that a truly powerful man or woman is not, or, or let me put it this way, Jesus tells us that a powerful man or woman is not necessarily a great man or woman. And he is telling us not to confuse power and greatness because they are not the same thing. Jesus further tells us that the world's model is not the model by which he wants his kingdom to advance. Because there is a huge difference between power and true influence. True influence 
being that place of influence that people voluntarily choose to give us in their lives. A person can have great power and yet have very little influence in another person's life. They can have great power and have very little authority or a deep volunteered influence in another person's life. And unlike the power structure where the model is a triangle and a person's power is directly proportional to the number of people that they have serving under them, the servant's influence is directly proportional to the number of people they are under and serving. The kingdom of God advances under a model like this. And the lower I go and the more people that I am actively serving, the greater my influence and true authority in this world. You watch it in a corporate in environment where you've got a department head who has power over all of the employees who are under him or her and he or she speaks and they obey for eight hours a day or else. That's power. That's how it works in the world. But what happens when one of those employees hits marriage problems or starts to struggle in raising one of the kids or gets a medical report that is, is deeply troubling to them? You watch at that moment in time who they turn to. And they will not necessarily turn to the person who holds the greatest pure power in their life. They will seek the advice and the encouragement and the influence of someone who maybe has no authority in the corporation, but has at some point in time shown enough concern for them in the past that they've served them in some way. That person, through their service, has gained a position of influence in that person's life. You watch it in a church environment. You watch who are the people that people gravitate to when they find themselves in trouble. And what you're watching is where authority is invested in people's lives rather than power. They gravitate, people gravitate to people who have a they have a relationship with and they have a relationship with them because at some point that person has served them and been a help to them. Now it does not mean in the corporate world or in the church world that those who have power are necessarily carnal and can't have this kind of influence because you can be the CEO of a corporation or the pastor of a church and if you are a servant in that role, then you will possess pure power, but you will also possess authority. And you want to have both of those, those things, the authority that comes with, with servanthood. It really is kind of a foolproof thing that God has set up in all of this to keep his kingdom and his people from becoming corrupted because he's decided things in a way where one's true influence in his church is directly proportional to the degree to which one has become a servant to others. And because when one gains influence among God's people from the position of a servant, then they, they have, in order to gain that, they have revealed the 
part of a servant and thus that they are the safest kind of people to entrust uh, influence to because they won't use it selfishly or against people. You can trust servants with this kind of authority. You can trust them with power that you cannot trust a, a, a selfishly ambitious person uh, with. When is the last time you ever heard of a church splitting over who was going to be the head slave in the church? When's the last time you heard of a split in uh, the leadership of a church? Because the two of them are uh, fighting tooth and nails over which group gets to clean the toilets after every service. It doesn't happen. People that have a servant's heart and a servant's focus and they understand what true authority is, they can be entrusted with power because they're not after power. Their desire is to serve people and, and make life better for people. And so whatever authority and power they do get, they will use it toward that end. It's fabulous how God has set things up. Well, a person can say, what's in it for the servant? I mean, this sounds like, this sounds pretty one-sided to me. Giving and giving and giving and giving. What about me? <laughs> the reward of this kind of life is one that we only appreciate by the Spirit of God. The reward of this kind of life may not be physical. It may not be material. You may end up in Jerusalem cursed and blasphemed by the Gentiles, covered with the spit of Jew and Gentile alike and covered with your own blood and on a cross. Because Jesus was the servant who came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'm not saying that this life translates into you getting your own television show or anybody caring that you Twitter. The joy and the reward of living this kind of life is the knowledge that I am living a life like Christ in this world. And that I am, by His grace, in the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, being an influence for Him in this world. And ultimately, at some point in our Christian life, whether early or late, we come to recognize that that is the one valuable thing to us. So the reward is to be like Christ, to live like Christ, and to be an influence for Him in this world. Well, somebody else may say, well, does it work? I mean, this is 2,000 years ago, and Jesus is talking here and all of this, and he's got the Gentile power structures pretty well figured out 2,000 years ago, but what about the complexities of modern business? and all? It's all the same. It all looks exactly the same. But someone can look and say, if I become a servant like that and all, yeah, I'll get killed out there. That's just not... Got to recognize there's a difference between servanthood and servitude. Servanthood is when I voluntarily make myself a servant to others in a situation. 
To have other people put me into servitude out of guilt or manipulation, that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's manipulation. We don't help people by letting them manipulate us. But this whole thing of saying, I am choosing to spend my life the way that Jesus spent his life by being a servant to the people involved in each circumstance that I find myself in, in, in life. Does that work? And it does work. Great example from the Bible is in the book of Acts chapter 9, a woman by the name of Dorcas. Some of you know her. You think about the book of Acts, 28 chapters. And I mean, it's all we have as a record of the early church. I mean, it's the most precious history that we own in the whole world. The early years of, of the advancement of Christianity and the body of Christ and all these things. I mean, every sentence, every verse, every bit of it is so valuable. We pour over it to learn everything that we can about how it applies today. And yet, in that book... God takes a huge section of one chapter and he devotes it to a woman by the name of Dorcas who died in the city of Joppa. And she is a woman in that city where before she died, what she did is she would make shawls and she would make garments for the widows, those who were the lowest on the totem pole in that culture, make clothes for them and give them to her, to give them to, uh, she'd give them to them. And when she died, it created such an outbreak of sorrow among the people in the city that Peter was sent forth to see if he might come and raise her from the dead, which ultimately he does. But when you walk into Acts chapter 9 and you walk into Joppa with Peter and you walk into the gigantic crowd of people who are weeping over the death of Dorcas, you look at her and you say, that is a woman who had no power in that city but had all the influence. She is having, she is having a reaction to her death that a king would kill for and sometimes does not have. Herod, when he, he was the, kind of the king of Israel at the time of Jesus and all, and in there, and there's so many Herods, I lose track of all of them. I've got to sit down and study them before I talk about them, and I haven't studied this one on that. But what, Herod the Great, when he died, because he, he knew no one would sorrow when he died, he set things up that all of the prominent Jewish leaders and men in Israel would be killed, and then when their families lamented their death, that it would be seen as a, a lamenting of the death of Herod. This is a guy who had all the power and he had no authority, he had no influence. And here is Dorcas living in a little city of Joppa. Nobody knows her name outside of the city. And she is a tremendous influence for the kingdom uh, of God. When I was a boy, how much time do I have here? If I get into boy, when I was a boy stories. So, what time do you have, John? You don't have a watch. God bless you. God. I just bear witness to that. What is it? Fifteen? Okay, so I'm right at the time. I'm, I'm right at the end here on things. When I was a boy, growing up in a little town that I was growing up in, there were times where we... we and it, it was pretty common back then, and it's common today, but... 
Now they've got all these outlets for clothing and all this stuff, and you can buy anything for 25 cents, you know, and go out and, and wear it. If you got it, you got it. You look good in that, too. You know what? It doesn't matter how much it costs. But anyway, so uh, there were years where we just didn't have uh, money for clothes for us in elementary school. And, uh, and in those days, when you're a kid, you know how you wear clothes out? Now, now the toughest beating that my clothes take are in the washer and the dryer. That's how they wear out. So I can't I have trouble wearing shoes out. When you're a kid, you wear all the tennis shoes out, you wear the jeans out, and, and you're searching for, you know, frogs and blue-bellied lizards, and you're in the hills, and you've got your bike, and you're going down hills and all that kind of stuff. And so you wear stuff out, and plus you're growing. So we didn't have food, I mean, we didn't have any cl- uh, money for clothes. But they had a ministry associated with a church in town. It was called the Dorcas Ministry. They bought two houses next to the church, filled them with clothes that people donated. And you'd walk in there, and w- the living room was full of jeans. The next bedroom was full of shirts. The next bedroom was full of uh, tennis shoes. And on it went through the two houses, and you could, on a somewhat regular basis, come in and only take a certain number of items, and we would go in, and it was like Christmas for us to get those clothes. And, and we'd go home, and we'd have somebody's converse and, and somebody's jeans, and here we were ready to go get some more blue-bellied lizards in them. And I'll tell you, that little Dorcas ministry in that city... They didn't have anybody on the city council. They didn't have any strings with the mayor. They had no pure power. But the influence that they gained for the kingdom in that community through taking that place, that low place, and then doing what was best or needed in the li- our lives at that time of need has given them an influence in my life that I will carry for the rest of my life. And I would watch them and listen to them, whatever they had to say, because they earned a right of influence in my life through their service. And that's the way that it works. It's not about power. And it's important for us as, as members of the body of Christ and as, as Christians to realize that the only way that we can become more influential for the Lord in this world is through servanthood. Not through manipulations, not through power grabs. This does not mean that we can't get involved in politics, that you can't run for office, that we can't get involved in the governmental structures and the power structure of our nation or our city or our state to influence it for righteousness. But it means that when we enter into those environments, we realize that we will be only be influential even in those environments as we conduct ourselves as servants there. Real influence for the Lord in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools can only come through servanthood. And as we just live our life in a way that will make life better for others, they will notice that it will be influential and then they might listen to what we have to say about our Lord. Well, that's the how of greatness and that's the guarantee of servanthood. But everything hinges on whether 
the lesson remains on the pages of our Bible as something Jesus said or whether we will choose to commit to that kind of life and to grow in it. It's a wonderful passage. We can all know it inside and out. But the question is in each of our lives, and I think it's good for us to ask ourselves as Jesus' disciples, who do I serve in that way? How many people in my life do I serve in that way? And some of us may sit and think and say, it scores. I serve virtually everyone in my life in that way. Praise the Lord. There may be other of us who sit in this room and you are still trying to figure out who you serve in that way and all of the relationships in your life. Or you got stopped at name number two or name number three. This passage is this is like a, this passage is like a lab. This thing explodes and does its thing as we just look at it, understand it, and then commit to saying, Lord, I want to go out into this world and into the relationships in my own household. I want to live this life and I want to learn what real influence looks like for you. And Jesus promises that this influence for him will take place. Now, one of the great things in, its, in the passage is very, very encouraging, because I don't intend for us to leave on some kind of a down thing of, oh boy, so I can't think of anybody and I must be a terrible person. The one, the one thing that's really nice about this is that the passage teaches us in an encouraging vein is that it's never too late to start. James and John got off to a very rough start in the area of servanthood in this passage. Very, very rough start. And ultimately, though, they became among the truest and the best of God's servants because they learned something clicked here for them. And they then entered into the life that Jesus was describing and their life became very influential for God. And so the same life is available to us. But now we know what we're aiming at and we're knowing at how to get there. And now we're going to stand and stand together and we're going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give us the will to do and the power to do this very thing.